Okay. All right, everybody. We're going to have Dr. Swan talk to us about some hand fractures. If I can have your attention. Take it away. All right, BC, what's going on here? On here? Yeah. Who? Looks like. Uh, Anybody know? Threw a fastball. <laughs> <laughs> you are correct. Yeah, probably, huh? That's a rod three weeks ago. He had a uh, fifth metacarpal fracture on his left hand. Uh, Eighty-eight mile per hour fastball. So some, uh, I've been asked to talk about hand fractures today, uh, since my knowledge is quite wealthy in hand fractures. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm just kind of going to cover major ones that we need to know. Uh, why are fractures named after people? Because they're important fractures. So some to know, Rolando, Bennett, Boxers, Collies. You guys are probably going, oh my god. You know, there's like Jones and Pseudo Jones and Liz Frank. Those are feet, so don't even worry about those today. <laughs> okay, so these are the ones we're going to kind of focus on and talk about the important ones. Okay, so why is it important to know about hand fractures? You know, obviously the human hand is very important. Um, and, you know, this is, we do most of our stuff with our hands. Um, avascular necrosis is one of them, just from the, uh, the circulation um, in the hand, um, and it can cause a lot of mobility limitation if they're not repaired correctly or uh, in a timely fashion. So we'll just review some anatomy first, starting with the basics. Um, the hand is divided into really three this area is divided into three different parts. So the hand is really going to be the middle part, and then you have the, the fingers, which are the metacarpals, and then you have the wrist, which is the radiant ulnus. So you guys all remember, uh, so long to pinky, here comes the thumb. Okay, so. <laughs> yeah, anybody not know this one? No? Oh, really? Oh, I guess so. All right. So, yeah, so long the pinky. If you start from your thumb, scaphoid, lunate, triquetrum, pisiform. Okay, so long the pinky, and then you go back towards the thumb. Here comes the thumb. Hamate, capitate, scaphoid, and trapezium. Like that? So long the pinky, here comes the thumb. Okay. Just don't start on the wrong side, because then you'll get everything backwards. And another way to remember the last two, the trapezoid and the trapezium, is trapezium is a U, so it comes last. It rhymes with thumb. And it rhymes with thumb, that's right. That's right. Okay. So blood supply, you guys remember the, uh, the, um, the princeps uh, pollicis artery? No, of course not. Um, Basically, all you need to know is that it has a very intricate supply. You're going to have the radial artery and the ulnar artery, and there's a collateral supply so that the whole thing gets fed. This is why you do the Allen's test. Remember when you're doing a, um, an A-line to make sure that they have um, col uh, collateral circulation from their ulnar artery. 
uh, that'll come into play a little bit later. Uh, nervous supply, so remember your ulnar, uh, radial, and then median nerve distributions. Uh, picture's worth a thousand words. Um, I'm just going to introduce a couple of splints here so that you know what I'm talking about when I talk about the different splints that you should do for the different kinds of hand fractures. So, um, wanna, let's just start here and then name off from, from the top if you know. No? No? Lee? Where are we, which way are we going? Top left. Um, let's see. The volar splint, exactly, good. Kenny Kim? Thumb spike. Thumb spike, okay, we'll just call them out. Uh, next one? Sugar tongue, exactly. And then over there on the left? Yep, the bottom two are gutters, and so it's going to be the radial gutter and then the ulnar gutter. Okay, so these are uh, the most common ones. So you'll know what we're talking about, okay, when we get to the treatment. Okay, so carpal fractures. Most are FUSH. FUSH stands for? Falling out stretched hand. Okay, among most frequently missed fractures in the ED um, are these carpal fractures. So we're going to go over these first. Um, so the scaphoid, if you take a look at the little top right uh, Gray's Anatomy illustration there, scaphos means boat in Greek. Um, it's also called the navicular. Navicular is a Latin word, I guess, for boat. And so I don't know. I can't really see a boat, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe Dr. Fox can imagine a sailboat there, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the proximal end um, is at more at risk for avascular necrosis because of that blood supply that I showed you. The, uh, it has distal entry into the bone, and so if you fracture it, you could um, have avascular necrosis. It's the most common carpal um, fracture. Um, if it's non-displaced, you can do a thumb spica and have them follow up. But if it's displaced, they need to be uh, consulted uh, with a hand consult uh, immediately. Um, this is just a quick little article that I found um, suggesting MRIs. Uh, they did um, a study, a retrospective study, on 611 consecutive scaphoid fractures, um, suspected scaphoid fractures. And they found that over half of them had plain films that were normal. And then um, over half of them uh, were found to actually have fractures on MRI. So their suggestion is that, you know, MRI, just the hand portion, uh, might be a useful tool to actually catch those fractures because it could result in a lot of, you know, disability later down the line. Um, not necessarily the same day in the ED, though. They found that within the two weeks of follow-up uh, could be appropriate. This is fascinating because the 80% of the normal plain x-rays, 80% were found to have bony injuries. That's much higher than I would have expected. Mm -hmm. I didn't know a number previously, mm -hmm. but I would have thought that it, you know, we splint everybody because they might have a fracture. Right. This is we splint everybody because they probably have a fracture. Yeah. So which ones need surgery? Or if it's displaced, you said? The displaced ones, yeah. I need the immediate consult. The immediate. Yeah. And so I don't know the... Fractures I don't, I don't know if non-displaced ones need surgery no, or not. As, as long as they, as long as you immobilize them and keep them but they moving, would. then the two ends, the neck of the scaphoid fracture they mend, then you get a union and you don't get the avascular necrosis. It's only if you didn't split them and you allowed them to keep moving, then you would get the non-union that was for avascular necrosis. So most don't need surgery. Okay, uh, lunate. Um, so it's pretty rare to fracture the lunate. 
Um, but some important things to know about the lunate are the lunate and the perilunate dislocations. Now this is endlessly difficult for me to really remember which one is which. Um, but if you look at the lateral view of the hand, that's where you're going to see it most obviously. Um, and so take a look at the top right. Um, that is called the spilled teacup sign. So the lunate is actually the one in the red, outlined in red. And you can see if you tr uh, try to draw a line through it, it's completely dislocated from where it should be. So it's supposed to be a little teacup that's spilled out. This one isn't really showing a whole lot of spillage, um, but that's the, the spilled teacup sign. Whereas the perilunate, now if you look in the bottom left picture, the, uh, the little cup, the lunate, is actually in, in place and it's the peri around it that is dislocated. So that's how you tell the difference between a, a lunate and a perilunate dislocation. If you look at the, the AP or the PA view, um, for the lunate, you're going to see the piece of pie sign. So that looks like a piece of pie from some other planet. But um, that's supposed to be the piece of pie sign. Um, <laughs> they're both you know, similarly uh, dangerous because of the risk of avascular necrosis with a dislocation that's kept, um, you know, unreduced like that uh, because of the distal entry of the blood supply into the lunate bone. And um, so you want to do a volar splint and then call a hand consult right away. Okay, so the scaffold lunate. So this is... Um, a different kind of lunate dislocation. We're not talking about lunate and perilunate anymore, but this is a, um, a dislocation between the scaphoid and the lunate. And so this is a Terry Thomas sign, who's a British comedian. Um, <laughs> I have nothing more to say about that. <laughs> Picture's worth a thousand words. Uh, Tricatcher lunate is the ulnar counterpart of the same uh, dislocation. So they're both usually Fouch injuries as well. Um, only one is on the thenar end and the other is on the hypothenar end, and that's how you get a different dislocation. So this one, also, volar uh, gutter splints. Um, volar or gutter splints with, uh, sorry, volar and gutter splints with ortho follow up. The tricatrum. I have not personally. Um, that's something that I need to work on probably more is working with ortho, you know, to actually do the the, the reductions together. But faculty. So, so uh, the, this the lunate or perilunate dislocation is not something that we're going to be doing on our own. We have to have the orthopedist come to the bedside for those. <coughs> the ones that we're going to reduce, if we do, is the ones we just yank on and it goes back into place. But this is the and, and so the. Perry lunate dislocation could conceivably just be traction and it would come back in, but I wouldn't mess with this one uh, without the orthopedist. Um, and especially when with the spilled teacup with a lunate dislocation, not only do you have to distract it, but somehow you have to manipulate the lunate back into position, which is not something we're treating. So we do the we do the yank on it reductions. Well, it seems like most most ortho reductions there are kind most of, of them are yanking. Yes. <laughs> Well, You're right. I had, one where I had one that was an ankle dislocation, but the talus was dislocated, and so it wasn't just a simple, it wasn't just a simple break of the medial malleolus. But the talus was out; nobody could get it back in with other people. So, if there's a dislocated bone from the carpal bones of the medical tarsal, or the carpal bones of the tarsal bones, we're not going to get it back in. Okay, uh, triquetrum, not a whole lot to say about it. It means uh, wedge-shaped, which it actually is. 
Um, so this could cause damage to the deep branch of the ulnar nerve. So you also want to have uh, ortho follow this up as well, uh, but not necessarily in the immediate consult in the ED. Uh, just be sure to splint them. Uh, hamate. So, and so that, that trichectum fracture is the second most common carpal bone fracture, right? Um, it, it is. Okay. And so, but it's only visible on the lateral view and only on one view. And so it's subtle. And if you don't look at the lateral view closely, then we miss the trichectum fractures. So, you don't have x rays enough? I don't. Okay, anybody want to guess what hammock means? <laughs> Ham-like, nice. <laughs> it means hook-like. Uh, that's why we always talk about the hook of the hamate. Um, so the hook is often more fractured uh, than the body of the hamate is. Um, this is going to be, um, you know, on the, the ulnar side. So check the ulnar nerve and the artery to make sure there's no compromise there. Uh, this is going to be a short arm splint and then a follow-up with hand. Uh, in one week as well. Okay, so trapezium, this is going to be a direct blow to the thumb uh, or forced dorsiflexion. So it's often intra-articular, which makes it bad. Uh, this is analogous to the Rolando and the Bennett fractures, which we'll cover in just a second. But remember, it's at the base of the thumb, so it's pretty much the same thing. You're going to want a thumb spike of this one and have ortho follow-up uh, within 10 days. Um, these three are not really uh, too often fractured. Um, pisiform means pea-like. Capitate means like a head. You see that big dome-like head at the top there? And then uh, trapezoid is a trapezoid. Um, so capitate fractures do bear a, a bit of mention. They're often missed, um, usually because there's other uh, surrounding injuries that are more obvious, so you just tend to miss it because you, you know, zone in on the other ones. Uh, but that can have avascular necrosis as well, so just keep it at the back of your mind. Uh, you want to consult hand, um, and also, uh, often this one, these ones um, eventually require operative repair. Okay, so metacarpal fractures, uh, going on to the fingers there. So metacarpal neck, uh, is uh, the one that's worthy of most mention. It's usually the fifth metacarpal. Um, these are pretty e easy to reduce, um, but they're hard to immobilize. Um, anybody know the, the kind of general rule for finger uh, reduction acceptable angles? Yeah, yeah. So uh, for those of you that don't know, um, the rule is just generally going to be 10, 20, 30, 40. And so you can still have 40 angle, 40 degrees of angle off, and it's still acceptable uh, of a reduction. But the first two fingers, 10 and 20%, they're not acceptable. Um, generally, these are usually uh, relatively fixed. So you need to have the nearly anatomic to when you reduce it again. Um, otherwise, if you have volar angulation, it's going to impair the grip when they try to, to grip later. Um, so uh, consult, you know, before you reduce um, the first and the second um, digits, or second and third, rather. Um, when you do reduce, uh, there's uh, something called the 90-90 method. And so it's essentially that you have a fracture in your, your uh, metacarpal neck. So you want a 90-degree angle here and a 90-degree angle here to uh, um, comply with the general principle that you want to immobilize the bone above and below the site of the fracture. Okay, so it's going to be this sort of immobilization. And then you can um, use a gutter splint. It's like your whole episode, right? 
it's more than that. It's literally, yeah, 90-90. Because soda can, you still have, you know, much more oblique angles than that. Okay, so this is going to be a special kind of uh, um, metacarpal fracture, neck fracture, which is a boxer's fracture. Um, so if, you know, just a quick mention, if it's open, you need to assume that it's a fight bite. Um, and then uh, Iconella corridens, of course, is a human uh, bite. You want to irrigate it copiously and consult hand. They might need to go to the OR for debridement for this. Um, and then you could do unison or zosin. Um, I think ticrocillin uh, as well. And you'd want to admit these patients. Right. Yeah, if they have uh, pen allergies, you could do um, uh, flagell and clinda. Yep. And usually the boxes fracture is classically the fifth, although it can be the fourth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it can be yeah either the fourth or the fifth. Um, I think it was Harwood Nuss <laughs> said that uh, with a boxer's fracture, you might con uh, consider a site consult as well because these patients can be <laughs> prone to, um, uh, you know, psychosocial impairment. <laughs> yeah. Um, metacarpal head fractures are pretty rare. Um, they often require uh, operative repair, so you want to consult uh, hand for that. Uh, the shaft, if it's non-displaced, you can just do a gutter splint. But again, if it's displaced, um, again, you'd want to get a surgeon involved. If there isn't any available, which is not going to be the case at UCI, but elsewhere, uh, you'd want to reduce and splint it uh, with follow-up within a week. Um, and if, it, if it's successful. And if it's not successful, then they need to be shipped off for um, surgery somewhere else. Um, and then the metacarpal base, um, again, non-displaced, ulnar volar splint with surgery follow-up. And then if it's uh, displaced or intraarticular, surgery. Okay, so we get to the uh, Bennett and Rolando fractures. That, well, that is included in the displaced or intraarticular basket, so complicated ones. have them go like this, the fingers should not <clears throat> overlap at all. No rotational deformity. 10, 20, 30, 40 degree thing is for flexion, but it's not for rotation. Any rotation is unacceptable. So if they do this and the cascade is not, if any of the fingers like overlap, then those patients need to have reduction by orthopedist to twist it back into place. Because if it's an angulated fracture, a spiral fracture, and it's twisted, we're not going to, it's not going to stay in place for us. So that's sort of for a lot immediate, but you know, tomorrow. Okay, so the Bennett and Rolando fractures. Uh, these are both intraarticular. Um, the difference between the two is one is worse than the other. So Rolando is worse. It's broken into more pieces. It can be T-shaped or Y-shaped. I'll show you a picture in just a second. Um, and it has a really poor prognosis, uh, even with repair. Um, you're going to want to do thumb spica, and then hand's going to uh, have to pin it or open it. So the one on the left is a Bennett. You can see it has a clean break at the base of the metacarpal there, uh, whereas the Rolando, this one looks more Y-shaped to me. So it could be T-shaped or Y-shaped. Okay, so notice they're both intraarticular. They're both fractures, but the Rolando's worse because there's more pieces. Okay. 
And then the um, trichotrum fracture was analogous to Bennett and Rolando fractures, where if it's interarticular, this is what we were talking about when I said it was analogous to that. Okay, so I'm kind of breezing through the next couple. The proximal and the middle phalanx, you can buddy tape them to tape two of them together, you know, um, to splint one finger to the, the next one if the next one is not fractured. Um, you can do that if it's non-displaced. Or if it's uh, unstable or displaced, though, they might need to go to the OR again. Um, <clears throat> you just want to be careful of causing a boutonniere deformity down the line um, with an avulsion fracture of the dorsal base of the middle phalanx. Um, so you want to have a hand see it right away. Uh, if they can't right away, then do a volar splint and send them out within the next day or so. Uh, distal phalanx, so some, um, there are some differences. Some people say it's uh, divided into tuft um, versus shaft and fractures versus intraarticular, or you could just call it extraarticular and intraarticular. Um, basically, if it's at the very tip, you're just going to do a U-shaped splint and have them follow up in three or four weeks. Um, intraarticular, these ones, though, can cause a mallet finger, and then you can have a swan neck deformity, so uh, they might need to go uh, to the OR for this. Basically, intraarticular fractures are bad, no matter how you cut it. Uh, we're not really going to cover a whole lot of dislocations, but there's one that bears mention because you're going to hear this name over and over, gamekeeper's thumb. Um, which is the ulnar collateral ligament injury. So all of you are thinking, oh, okay, it's on the side of my hand, but it's not. It's the ulnar side of your thumb, okay? And this is actually a, a karma injury as far as I'm concerned. Um, these gamekeepers' thumb was uh, named after Scottish gamekeepers, and they'd snap the necks of the rabbits, and then they would tear their ligament right here. <laughs> now it's known often as skiers' thumb. They're skiing, and their thumb gets caught in the strap, and then they go down. And so this is uh, the uh, ligament injury here. Uh, you want to put this in a thumb spica and then have hand consult. The reason is because if the tendon is, is split in two and you have two floating ends here, you can have the proximal end get trapped within the aponeurosis, and then that can cause lasting damage. So you don't want that, okay? Right, you become a, you become a, a monkey. So is that usually like an avulsion? It's usually an avulsion injury, right? It's not so much a fracture, an, an avulsion injury of the bone, but a, a, a severance of the tendon or damage to the tendon itself. So you wouldn't see anything necessarily on x-ray? Not necessarily. You might see a little hold off piece, but there'll be swelling and then... It'll be tender, they'll be weak. If you try to open up, it opens up. So do this on yourself, it's solid. You try to do this on somebody with a gamekeeper's thumb and it just opens up. Oh, really? Dr. Pitts. So, um, that's a nice diagnosis to make for patients. And sometimes um, they have a lot of tenderness there, and they won't let you do that. Sometimes people order stress x-rays. Um, so squirt a little xylocaine into the area. Mm -hmm. And then you can get yourself a really nice exam because their pain's gone. And you can even do the x-rays to demonstrate the joint opens up. So just think about the lidocaine to make the diagnosis. They're going to repair it because the problem is pinch weakness, as Dr. Langdorf said. So I think generally, um, my experience, and they want to see it within seven days because what happens is that the ligament will start to retract and then they've got to do other procedures. Yeah, 
and you just don't want to miss the diagnosis entirely until you have a thumb sprain, then they go home for three weeks, and then they all of a sudden they're, they're, they lose their cancer rates. So you make the diagnosis and <coughs> So they'll have loss of pinch grass at the time you see them too? Well, they won't, they won't do it because it'll hurt. Yeah. As soon as they push on it, it's going to hurt. So. But once the inflammation of the acute tear goes away, then Okay, no more questions on that. Okay, so wrist fractures, ulna and radius, basically. Uh, distal radius fractures uh, um, are going to be the Collies and the Smith's fractures. Okay, two more names. So this picture really helps a lot. Uh, basically, a Smith, a uh, Collies fracture is, you know, when you fall outstretched arm, it's going to be a... Um, an extension fracture, okay? Smith is the same thing, except you fall like this, okay? Um, and it's going to be the distal uh, radius. So, um, you know, you're going to want to obviously reduce these and put them in a splint as well. Um, ulnar shaft, these are called nightstick fractures, you can imagine, right onto the ulna. Um, also defensive, you might consider uh, domestic violence, you know, or some other sort of assault if you see uh, just an isolated ulnar shaft fracture. Um, this is going to be a sugar tongue splint with the ortho follow-up. Yeah. Can I say something really yeah. I always used to get the Collies and Smith fractures mixed up, and so the way I remember it now is the Collies is angulated kind of dorsally, and so it forms a C. So the Collies fracture, the um, the piece is kind of angulated where your hand is pointing. So that's how I kind of remember the Collies, just so you remember that versus the Smith, where it's like that's kind of an awkward versus C. The Collies is probably five or ten. Because your natural inclination is to put your hand all the way out to fall. Now, like who falls like Okay, so these are not really hand fractures, but you're going to hear these over and over, so we might as well go over them now, okay? Their, their names. All right, so Galeazzi and Montagia fractures. So Galeazzi fractures, this is going to be the radial fracture with ulnar dislocation. Montagia is the opposite. The way to remember that, because these are going to be on your test and things like that. Some people uh, say G and R are both before M and U, okay, G in the alphabet. Uh, some people just think mugger, uh, Montagia with ulnar fracture and then Galeazzi with uh, radial fracture, whatever works for you guys. Um, but they're both uh, serious injuries and they require uh, ortho consult in the ED. Um, so a nice uh, review article, you can find it in uh, EB Medicine. Um, uh, you guys all have uh, passwords, I think, if uh, residents. Um, I'm not sure about the students. So this was a very nice uh, review article <coughs> um, from last year based out of um, Highland General Hospital. And um, it just kind of goes through all of the things that we talked about and also uh, other hand injuries like uh, injection, you know, uh, paint injection injuries and um, bites and things like that. So any questions? No questions? Okay, let's do questions. All right. So, do you guys have the sheet or whatever? Dr. B.C., she sent out the tricheal fracture x-ray. Take a look at that. Oh, thank you. You were saying it would have to be lateral yeah. to see it? Yeah. 
Oh, I have I have two more uh, more fun show and tell picture mostly picture presentations that has nothing to do with hand fractures. all done? Okay. And then um, I have a couple um, other quick presentations I was asked to make. Um, so this is more like what else can you do in residency sort of stuff. Um, I happen to do, I happen to have an interest in EMS and disaster and so these are just little you know projects and activities that um, I happen to find. So you know some of you may not have an interest in, all, in it whatsoever so feel free to go sleep. Um, <laughs> but you know it's just something interesting, something a little bit outside the box that if you were interested um, I could, you know, direct you to the right person so that you could do it or, or whatever. So let me just set this one up really quick. Okay, so um, this one is uh, on uh, USAR, Urban Search and Rescue. Um, I did the uh, medical specialist training class a uh, couple months ago. Um, what is USAR? Um, basically, USAR is going to be, uh, it stands for Urban Search and Rescue. Um, and so we'll kind of go through these things uh, during the talk. You know, most people think of search and rescue as the, the search dogs, and they're definitely part of the, the program. Um, basically, you're looking for uh, finding and then dragging out um, patients and then medically treating them. Uh, from confined spaces, that's the majority thing. Think 9-11, think people trapped in Katrina, Oklahoma City, these are the sorts of things. Um, it really uh, is structural collapse and rescue uh, from, from confined spaces. Uh, but you could have transportation accidents, you know, like train crashes, uh, mine collapses, or even collapsed trenches. Um, as you can see in this picture here, they're trying to get somebody out of a collapsed structure. Um, USARs used when there's a national disaster like the ones that I mentioned. So FEMA is the Federal Emergency Management um, Agency. They'll deploy the first three task forces to that, you know, earthquake or whatever happened within six hours. So you're really literally on call when you're on call. Um, and then they'll bring in more teams from across the nation as needed. Um, the teams really support the state and local responders, so they don't take over for you know whatever first fire department that that responds, but they they uh, assist them once they get on. There's a lot of people involved in each team. There's um, two teams of 31 people each, so there's like you know over 60 people uh, with uh, each task force. And there's four dogs, and there's a, like a semi full of equipment that you bring. Each team and its semi has to be completely self-reliant for 72 hours. So all the generators, water, food, you know, medical equipment, everything that you might need for 72 hours um, because you're the one that's going to help. You don't want to, you know, need rescue yourself. Um, so basically there's uh, four areas that USAR task forces work in, um, the search, the rescue, and then there's the technical part 
um, which is um, they have like structural engineers that are also on a task force team as well. Um, they determine whether a structure is safe to go into or not, well, as safe as it could be. Um, and they also help with bracing walls and you know all that aspect of it. Um, so what we're going to focus on, um, what my course was, was the medical specialist course. And that is the one that cares for the victims during or before the extrication starts, during the extrication process, and then after the uh, rescue. Um, so in the class that I was at, there were four uh, physicians, there was one PA, and then there were 30 paramedics. Um, if you want to become the, the medical team manager as an MD, you do have to go through this training so that you know uh, exactly what it is that the uh, medics are doing. Uh, some physicians choose to be really gung-ho and dive into the tunnels and crawl through the collapsed buildings, you know, even as a team manager. Um, and then some choose to stay outside the building and send in the medics uh, to go extricate the patients. It's really kind of up to what, you know, what your level of uh, comfort and how you want to operate. But, you know, I, I, there, there are several people that just dive in on their own, too. Um, from everywhere across the country, uh, they all... Um, converged in Mountain View. Um, so this, these are just some of the topics we covered. I'm not going to get into it, but some of the things we covered were, you know, what exactly the use are and the medical team are as opposed to the structural or the rescue or the search teams. Um, public health environmental issues, these are obviously going to be issues, you know, when you're stuck in a, you know, place like Katrina, you can't ignore those. Uh, incident stress is huge. Um, they talked about confined space medical operations. Um, I'll show you a few pictures about those. Um, it, um, improvised explosive devices and blast injuries, uh, like Oklahoma City, of course. Um, NBC agents, um, these are going to be the uh, nuclear, biological, and chemical uh, weapons. Um, documentation, can't ever escape it. Can never escape it, especially in a place like this. Um, and then... Uh, the funnest part for me was the search canine veterinary care. We got to learn that too, which was really neat. Um, and then there were skill stations. We had to do use camera and learn how to search with a camera, uh, which was pretty neat. Um, so limited access uh, assessment, IV star intubation. This is all basically your hands are in a hole and you're feeling around and you're trying to do an assessment on patient. Um, and start and tube. Uh, immobilization, so obviously crush injuries, or not crush injuries, but pa patients are going to get injured, but they're still trapped in a hole, and you have to immobilize them before you drag them out of the hole. So that's a challenge. Um, we did tunnel crawls, and then we learned how to do the uh, exams um, and intubation and such on the dogs. So this is one example, one of the skill stations that they set up for us. This is an 18-inch plywood box, so it's about this big. They just have it on the ground. And they have one of those, you know, mannequins that you always use for the airway stations, you know, the airway training. They just stuck it in one end of the box. And so you're in there, 18 inches, and you're intubating. Um, the problem with that, as you can see uh, on this guy's uh, head, you're ha you have to be protected, right? You have to wear a helmet because you can't go into any place without a helmet, period, because then you become a victim, and then they have to extricate you and the patient. You also have to have your light, you have to have your, your face mask, because, you know, everybody knows about the 9-11 um, lung problems that all the rescuers had. So there's all this 
crap you have to wear on your head and you're trying to squeeze into this 18 inch box to intubate somebody so you basically have to put your helmet in the corner because you can't fit your your head straight up and so you have to angle your head to the corner and look with one eye and you're intubating like that <laughs> so that was just something that sort of brought it home uh, in the skill stations for us this is um, part of the concrete they uh, dug out a hole and again you can see the lungs of the mannequin and you can only fit one arm in so you're doing a nasal this guy's doing a nasal intubation you can see the little can right there of lube <laughs> the ubiquitous can of lube um, so that's another uh, skill station that we had I took this picture from behind uh, I was in the tunnel and the instructors out front looking in and that's just a different angle from um, they construct tunnels uh, for us. Obviously, they have to build some of them too. So this is, you know, just crawling in. I mean, intubating is, you know, tough even in the ED. You know, when you're learning how to do it, and like with all this chaos all around, and you know, they had razor blades and nails everywhere, and so you have to have, you know, your protection. It's really hard to stay protected yourself and accomplish your goal and squeeze through. Um, they had this guy, one of the instructors, who was just a giant man, giant, giant man. But he would go through every tunnel that he sent us through. And we're like, how the heck did that guy fit through that hole? But you know he did. Um, he even coached some of the, uh, the guys from the Midwest who had bigger uh, waistlines than the rest. <laughs> he had to coach some of them to, when they're going in a hole, to breathe in really deep and then start going through the hole and breathe out as you're going so that you can actually fit yeah and I'm not I'm not particularly claustrophobic you know but I would have had a really hard time if I was that big and I had to do that I fortunately I was able to fit through the hole without having to do that but yeah <laughs> yeah I actually I'm glad I took it when I did two months ago because I don't think I could have done it now um, and so this is part of the equipment that you use to drag a patient out. I mean, literally, you're dragging the patient out of a collapsed building. So the orange thing is uh, called a sked. It's just this, you know, flexible, not so flexible, uh, orange sled, basically, that you put, you know, the patient's head up here. Uh, and their feet down there and you just drag them out but you got to drag them around corners inside a building you know and over concrete bars and so it's really you cannot get a backboard in there there's just no way so you have to have something a little bit more flexible um, this box has all your meds and your you know intubation stuff and all that in there um, tarps of course to protect from sharp things um, and then you see all their PPE, the masks, the headlight, the, it's just incredible. You're wearing just a simple plastic helmet and, you know, a headlamp, but like at the end of the day, your head feels like it's going to fall off. And that face mask, hate that thing, but it's so dusty in there, you can't not wear it. It's so tempting to just yank it off. Um, one fun thing was uh, how to immobilize somebody. So, you know, this is in between concrete slabs about you know two feet three feet apart how do you get somebody that's you know this guy down here is the victim how do you get that guy out uh, from that position to freedom basically and so what they had to do and I'm not going to demonstrate this but basically you crawl up next to the the victim and you have this blue tarp that's folded in a almost like a tubular way and then 
you have to lay it out next to the patient, you know, so you lay it out so that it covers the length of their body. And there were a lot of snickers going on when we were doing this, um, this, this uh, part of the, the course. You have to basically hug the person, like grab them with your legs and hug them and then roll them, tuck the blanket out, and then roll them back onto the blanket. You know how, the, you know, with the uh, trauma patients, you know, you roll them on the side, you tuck the, the sheets, and then you roll them back over. That's essentially what you're doing, but you have to, like, really be intimate. <laughs> but nobody's thinking about that in these situations, right? Yeah, right, exactly. Um, and then we got to do the doggies. So they had uh, some vets bring in their dogs. Oh, my God. They, these dogs were like heaven, you know. They just let you do anything. They were just happy, you know, poke and prod. And, yeah, they were just, they were like the highlight of the whole course. Um, this was a little freaky <laughs> when I uh, ran into the, the equipment room. And I was like, there's like all these dog heads on the ground because <laughs> I didn't know like they had I thought they were only live models um, but intubating a canine is actually super duper easy like you open their mouth and oh, there's cords like <laughs> you don't need a, a, a laryngoscope or anything you just it's actually really boring so this this station took like three minutes yeah weird and then we did the scenario so this was over um, uh, a week and so each day we had, you know, first the didactic stuff, and then we did the scenarios and, you know, mixed in. Um, and then, like, towards the end of the week, Thursday and Friday, uh, we, had, we started, like, we had to be in class at 7 in the morning, and we went till 1 in the morning uh, just crawling through tunnels and stuff. Um, we had breaks, of course, but it was pretty long. Um, so they had a couple of different scenarios set up. Uh, the 48 hours was for the uh, medical specialist, the, the doc in the group essentially. You had to treat somebody with crush injury, so you have hyperkalemia um, essentially that you can't, you don't have an AccuCheck, so you can't, you know, diagnose, so you have to go by clinical suspicion if they're hypoglycemic, and then you have to treat the hyperkalemia based on their probable injuries because you don't have an ISTAT or labs, obviously. Um, so that was kind of fun uh, for, for the docs. Um, the medics are all supposed to be able to do this as well, um, but the docs need to know it, and sometimes you'll have to give the orders from outside maybe to the person that's actually at the scene of the, the patient. Um, it was kind of crazy, that little metal box with all your medications and stuff. You have to draw everything up, put in a Ziploc bag, and send it. It can take 30 minutes to go 15 feet to the patient if you're crawling around razor blades and nails and you know concrete bars and squeezing through places and holes while you're sucking in your gut and so it's not as easy as like oh order me this or let me put in that order for you you have to think about all of these things ahead of time maybe send it in but you can't send in too many because somebody's trying to you know squeeze their gut through a hole how they're going to carry a bunch of stuff with them right like an IV bag alone is cumbersome it really is. So it was really fun for the docs. Um, the windy room, they basically blew in a bunch of like water and smoke. And so you were lost in all the darkness. And you had to find your way to the patient and protect him from the elements, blah, blah, blah. Um, we had to crawl through a tunnel setup, which was the suck in your gut part, um, along with a bunch of other turning around 90-degree corners and going upside down and things like that. Um, the Stokes pile carry, they had this maybe the size of this 
this two of these rooms, just this huge rub, rubble pile of com uh, concrete. And we had like all 50 of us carry um, somebody in one of those metal baskets that you put the, the backboard in, carry it over the pile. And essentially what you do is you make like this human centipede and you just hand over to the next person. Then you walk around and get at the back of the line. Um, and then the night drill with the DMAT sort of topped it all off. Uh, DMAT is the uh, disaster, oh, I'm blanking, medical aid team. Uh, th these are the field tent hospitals, which is essentially they do like the first uh, part of treatment. So you drop them off at the hospital. They take care of it, and then they, uh, the ambulances take from there to whatever local hospitals uh, might be capable of doing. So every day we will be in this, you know, this big warehouse doing the class portion, and then we go out to the yard and put on all our stuff and extricate dummies. This uh, was a, a resident from Boston, um, Mass General, a BYU resident, I think. Um, there's, there's a few other docs, but they're not in this picture. Um, so they constructed this. It looks pretty benign and innocuous from the outside, but it really wasn't on the inside. Um, that's the rubble pile that we had to, half of it anyway, uh, that we had to carry patients over. And that was my team. <laughs> so that's the, the search and rescue part. What time is it? Is it time? 55? Do you want a few more pictures I can zip through? Yeah.